Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Pamela Paul. Pamela, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I've been looking forward to this call for a while. And uh, I guess I'll start, if, if it's okay with you, do you mind if I read your bio off your page? Not for at people all. don't know you? So Pamela Paul is a columnist for The New York Times, previously editor of The Book Review, uh, oversaw all book coverage at The New York Times, and you're the former host of the weekly Book Review podcast. You're... And you... I have to say, after a bit, before I knew your name, and sorry, I'm going off the bio, but before I knew your name, I've read so much of your things. Um, I'm going to share how I came to you, if that's okay. Sure. Was that there was an article that mentioned a previous guest on this podcast, and a friend of mine, John Sargent, who's the uh, now retired CEO of Macmillan. And the book was, the, the piece was called, There's More Than One Way to Ban a Book. This was a little over a year ago. And it talked about how there's things like, uh, sensitivity reads and self-censorships from, from the left, from the right. And at the time and now, uh, as regular listeners to this podcast know, I come at sustainability sometimes treating it in ways that are not what a lot of people think of and might feel a little uncomfortable talking about, like addiction or imperialism. And the story really spoke to me because it talked about these problems and you weren't moralizing. You weren't news reporting either. You were talking about this is how things are. And it got me to reading a bunch of your stuff. So that came – that brought me to you. Uh, and I'd love to talk to you about what you write about. Sure. Well, um, I write a weekly column for the New York Times on the opinion pages. I've been doing this for a little over a year. And, um, you know, the subjects – that I take on um, very widely. Often they are broadly within the realm of culture, ideas, education. I'm really interested in the intersection of consumer culture um, and regular life, technology and regular life um, or daily life. Um, I'm also very interested in language and how it reflects things going on in society. Um, and occasionally I will write about something sort of more political. Um, although it's funny when I originally became a columnist, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do everything except for parenting and politics. And another columnist advised me, Oh, don't say that because you never know. And it is true. And mm -hmm. I have written, um, a few, uh, columns that touch directly on, uh, on politics, but, uh, I'm not, you know, writing about those things every week, like some of my colleagues, for example, Maureen Dowd or, or Gail Collins. They're often writing about the sort of politic, you know, political news of the week. And I tend to do that less often. Yeah, the, you don't you don't seem to hold back from it. I mean, there I mean, I was just reading um, about your piece about quitting Twitter and your advice. Don't write about that. And. And you're like, but, and what you wrote about was interesting. It was, it was a different take. Uh, here, I, I made a couple notes. Here's some patterns that I found of topics that you wrote about. I don't know if this rings true to you or not, but this is just a reader's perspective. But I feel like you cover things that, things that are on everyone's mind, but not everyone's talking about these things, or even you do go on to some things that people are avoiding. And it seems like you have a view that, as it seems to me, it's like one step above things, like a bit meta of like when I read it, I feel like, yeah, this is something I want to talk about. I actually kind of want to talk to you when I'm reading it and thinking like, this is what 
the real issue is, and everyone's talking about these low-level details, but this is what it's really at. And I, I kind of want to engage with you. So it feels like it's things that also you, you tend to go to things that like um, I feel like comedians, we like them to treat certain things, um, race, sexuality, gender things that they treat with comedy, which makes it – enables them to treat it. But you you do have funny stuff, but you're not a comedian. And well, I mean, maybe you are, but I mean, no, actually, <laughs> no, it's, I wish I could. I, I wish it's one of the, the, you know, things like a, being a cabaret singer or a political cartoonist that I, I don't have the talent for, but uh, would be an ideal alternate life. I have to ask you in a recent column, you wrote, uh, you were writing something where it touched on marijuana and you said something about nipping it in the bud. And I was like, was that on purpose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a hopeless punner, um, and uh, it, it used to be very looked down upon, um, you know, easy puns. But I really sometimes I I can't help myself, and I think maybe maybe we have a little more leeway in the culture to to pun unrepentantly. So I did find it. Okay, cool. I, I'm very proud of myself then. <laughs> uh, and so I feel like you do go into political issues, but I don't see you getting into the morass. I, I although. I've found some articles, other people criticizing you that do pull you into the morass, but I don't, I think they're trying to pull you down into something that you're not in. Yeah. I, I mean, many people will tell you who've been colonizing for a longer time than I have that if you aren't getting someone upset or you aren't getting any kind of reaction, then you're not really saying anything worthwhile. So it's not that I intentionally go out there and try to get under people's skin, but if you are touching a nerve, um, it means that you're getting at something real. So it doesn't bother me. Yeah, this is a lot of where I wanted to go because I, I partly I want to hear selfishly that I should go into areas that I'm nervous about going into and... I think you probably you'd probably say something like "Go for it," but probably with about a lot more experience than I could come up with on my own. Like, I have this chip on my shoulder. I, I've been several times told your voice has already been heard. The best thing you can do for now is shut up and listen, and not talk about these things. And I'm not content with that. I don't. I, I there are things that I haven't been heard about, and but I haven't gotten a black eye yet. I haven't taken the I haven't taken the risk yet. Well, I think that there are a lot of tactics um, to try to stop people from saying things because they don't want to be upset or they don't want to um, have opposing ideas out there. But not doing so, you know, it really becomes a kind of um, self-fulfilling prophecy or a vicious circle, right? If everyone is afraid to talk about something, then no one talks about it. Then everyone looks around and says, well, no one's talking about this. I shouldn't talk about this. And so it sort of reinforces that silence. And it's, um, you know, I think it's a very um, sort of sinister tactic to say, you know, you've had your say, it's time to listen now. All of us should listen. All of us should be listening. But that includes the critics who are telling you to stop talking and listen. They should be hearing what you have to say. So it's really a kind of hypocritical statement to say to someone, be quiet and just listen if they don't allow themselves to listen to. Now, that makes sense. There's also the actual doing it. And I mean, did you ever have a column where you were, or maybe all of them, that where you're, 
you know that in principle, and yet you need to get over the hurdle of actually doing it. And I mean, if I think of sports, there are definitely times when I was nervous to go in a game, but I was confident when I was early, I was afraid to go in in the big points because I didn't want to make a mistake and lose the game. But as I got better, I knew I might still make mistakes, but I was confident and uh, I felt I, sh- I want to be in the in the difficult points. I want to be in the big games. And I know that in one area of life, I haven't had that here. I mean, if I lose a game, it's a game. It's not like a book that I put out there that could stick with me for a long time. So there's the, the emotional challenge to overcome each time. Is that something you faced? I think I've always thought about taking risks as being something that if you wait until you are 100% on board with taking the risk, you'll never actually take that risk. So I often think about it as 5% of me made a decision and dragged the other 95% <laughs> along. Uh-huh. So I mean, to go with your sports metaphor, um, I was a terrible athlete growing up. I mean, really bad. I've still never hit a ball with a bat. And as a consequence, I really just sort of sat it all out until college when sophomore year, I realized a lot of my friends were athletes and that they really loved what they were doing. And I thought, maybe I'm missing out on what a team sport is. And so having been scarred by experiences in school with pretty much every sport out there, (laughs) I had to try one that I'd never tried before. And that was rugby. Um, So I joined the rugby team, the women's rugby team in college, having had no no sports experience really to speak of at all, other than, you know, some skiing and horseback riding. And I went into every single match totally terrified Um, and knowing, unlike you, I wasn't going to get particularly good at it. Um, I didn't really have any natural aptitude for it. Um, but once you were on the field, you know, it was kind of too late to change your mind. So really only a small part of me had to say, go, you know, and I was in it and it was too late. And I remember, you know, the next sort of big risk I took like that was after college, I moved by myself to a city in Northern Thailand and people, you know, said, oh, that's so brave. That's so amazing. How did you do that? And I, you know, I really, again, felt like I couldn't take full credit for it because only, 5% of me made that decision to go somewhere where I didn't know anyone and didn't have a job and didn't speak the language and basically had no money and and dragged the other 95% along. And once I was there, I was in it and there was no turning back. So before I became a columnist, I said to myself, the only reason to do this and the only way to do this in any meaningful sense is if you are willing to write whatever you think, um, no matter what. You're willing to write whatever you think is true, no matter what. Otherwise, you're just taking up space for someone else who could be saying what they think is true. Um, You know, it's sort of, if this is your job, it's the onus is on you to really say what you think and not what you think people want to hear or what you think will get you the most, you know, upvotes on Reddit or or retweets on Twitter or the most people who think like you to like you. Um, that's just, that's not what the job is supposed to be. You're supposed to actually be trying to convey something you really believe. So that's, that remains my constant metric. Um, so I don't really need to 
rethink it each time because I needed to make sure before I even went into this job that I was going to be willing to do that no matter what. How's it worked? I mean, has has it just, have you had reactions or things that happened that were beyond your expectations? Did you have editors that stood up for you or have things worked out exactly as, as planned? Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say, I love this job. Um, I absolutely loved it. I had been an editor for 11 years before this at the New York Times Book Review. Um, and for nine years, I was heading the book review and I was in the newsroom. And as part of that job, um, it was really, uh, I, I, I couldn't ever say what I thought, right? I couldn't really issue any opinion, especially leading a desk where the, um, intention and the beauty of that desk is that it was supposed to be a full range of opinions about books of all different kinds of subjects and to reflect the tastes of a group of editors who worked collaboratively. And so it was a very much a kind of behind the scenes process um, where you're mostly guiding other people in their opinions, whether it's book critics or freelance reviewers or individual editors so that they feel like they all have the freedom to express their tastes and opinions on a whole range of books, nonfiction um, and literature. And so during that time, I had very little time, first of all, to ever write anything outside of work, although I, I did write, um, I think, five books, but there, there are kind of ways I did that on the side while I was working there. And it was mostly, you know, keeping quiet publicly about what my thoughts were. So I had a lot of material saved up and I was also really chomping at the bit to go back to writing, which is what I had been doing for nine years uh, freelance prior to coming to the Times. So I have to say just the freedom to write every week and to have that be my job for me is better than anything. Uh, it's, it's sort of the fulfillment of exactly what I want to be doing during the day. And as I mentioned, I had written five books while I was editing the book review and the impact that that had on my daily life and just my, my well-being really became apparent during the pandemic because, you know, I was working at home like so many other people um, who were able to and sort of forced to work from home. So was my husband, my three kids were at home and, um, I remember my husband saying to me one day, like, this is amazing. I get to have lunch with the kids every day. And I thought to myself, wow, I don't get to have lunch with kid, the kids every day because I was constantly in a meeting. I was working from, you know, dawn until dusk. I was waking up or rather not dusk uh, late into the night. I was waking up early on the weekends because I was simultaneously trying to finish a book on deadline while doing my day job and having three kids. And I had very little time um, to think and never mind kind of um, mull over ideas. I was just trying to get the job done and writing always had to be really squeezed into the margins. So to have the writing come out of the margins and just be my full-time day job, um, for me, it's just a joy. So I'm taking away something in your answer of that the the things that I'm concerned about are so 
eclipsed by the joy of writing. Of get, I mean, I'm not a columnist. I'm writing a book and it's the book that I've been dreaming of writing. And I mean, it keeps evolving. There's all this writing is hard, but how do I put it? There, there, it, it resonates with uh, something I've learned in life is that oftentimes one way to solve problems, not one way to handle problems is to realize that there's much bigger things at, at, at play and those things will work themselves out. Sort of like um, when a coach, uh, not to go back, well, to go back to sports, when a coach says, you know, we do our best and the score will work itself out. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the the perspective of, of write the best book that I can, enjoy writing, enjoy that I, I know that there's something that the world is craving, doesn't know that it's craving, but I can offer it. And the whatever controversies or, or if, they're, if they're discontents, that'll work itself out. Well, you know, you get at something that a lot of writers talk about talk about all the time, really, which is, you know, is writing difficult, is writing easy. And I think there are great writers for whom, uh, you know, that they're both answers, you know, either answer can be true. And sometimes it's one answer and sometimes it's the other for the same person. Um, for me, writing is, you know, the process itself isn't hard. It's easy. It's fun. Obviously, it's still challenging. And to write well is really challenging and to get it to a place where you 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 think it's um, you know, ready um, can be a challenge, but I'm not someone who has writer's block or who um, finds the process of writing itself difficult. For me, it's just, it's pure pleasure. And I go into that, you know, mode that uh, psychologists call flow, where I just lose track of, you know, time time and, and space. So to be able to do something, you know, during the day for for work that is, such a pleasure. It's just everything, all the hard parts are, um, are worth it, you know? Um, and for me, I also think about fulfillment and job as kind of it, fulfillment in a job as kind of two different levels. You know, you can either be doing something that you think is meaningful and important and that serves some kind of higher purpose in your life. Um, like for example, gun control, you could be working for an organization that is, you know, trying to uh, forward legislate legislation that is, you know, uh, gun control legislation, and you might find that to be extremely fulfilling. But the day to day work that you do might be stuffing envelopes or fundraising, um, making cold calls, and so you don't really like the day to day. Or you could be doing something where you love the day to day. Let's say it's writing, um, but the larger purpose of what you're doing, um, writing, let's say, advertising copy for sugary cereals, isn't something that fulfills your higher mission. And for me, like in this particular work, I feel like I'm doing both. I feel like I am trying to write about issues that I think are really important or interesting for readers, things that I think people should think about or reconsider or question there's their assumptions on or maybe even change their minds and the actual writing itself is really easy um, or fun or enjoyable challenging in a good way so it kind of hits both levels and again like any any downsides that come along with that um are worth it i'm not saying that it is is fun for example if you write something and people misinterpret it Willing, willfully or otherwise, or attack you for having had the temerity to have a particular point of view that might differ from theirs. 
Um, but again, it's kind of the price that you pay for for doing that that work. Well, I have to say, I'm really this is not the answer that I expected, and it's more valuable than I than I could have hoped for. Uh, not to build you up or anything, but that I was really thinking you'd be like, oh, just you know, don't let them win. Uh, you can do it or something like that. But I'm hearing a more personal story of of the joy. Like there've definitely been things in my life that I have when I've found the joy in it, then it's well, I, on all my sustainability stuff. I don't know how much you know about it, but. Uh, like a little over a year ago, I disconnected my apartment from the electric grid to see if I could make it. Well, my goal is to make it a month and to see if I could make it. I didn't know how to make it more than the past a couple of days. And since my co-op board won't let me install anything permanent, I had to get these portable solar panels that I have to carry up and down 11 flights to go to the roof a couple of times a day, three to five days a week. And it might sound like drudgery, but... It's actually been a journey of just dis- self-discovery, discovery about myself, about about my culture, and it's really—I I don't know how well this comes across because my mom doesn't believe me, but it's a joy. It's like—I mean, I don't really enjoy going up and down the stairs. There's effort in that that I could easily just plug back in again because I'm now in my, in my second year. But it's—well, I, I'd go on too long if I talked about. And if you want to know, I'll be happy to tell you. But what brings that joy and why I feel so much and why I keep wanting to do it? Um, yeah, it's great. And maybe it is a bit of focusing on the process and, and what I can enjoy and letting things resolve as what what the price com- what price comes can come from writing what I believe needs to be written. Well, if you're writing about that, right, then you're writing the message that it is that you want to get across. Yeah, well, I mean, it gets into things that I got this chip on my shoulder because I keep getting told because I'm straight or white or male that that uh, I don't really understand these things. And, and, and yet I don't think that I can convey things if I don't. And what people think about tends to be what people presume has been my experience has not been my experience, which makes me want to say it more. Well, I guess, first of all, not everything has to come out of personal experience, right? I mean, we all observe things in our own way, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about us, right? The enterprise of journalism is often writing about the other. I mean, you do your reporting, you do your research, um, and then you write about something that is not your experience, but that other people are, are uh, you know, experiencing and you are conveying their experience to a larger audience. It doesn't mean that you need to share it yourself. So I guess that's one of my responses. And I've obviously I've, I've written about this a little bit. And the other thing is that no one's perspective as an individual is fully colored by their demographic characteristics. If all white people thought the same thing. Um, that would be incredibly boring. It's obviously impossible to even believe such an absurd idea. Um, and certainly um, politics, when uh, when the vote wasn't extended to uh, women or to minorities, um, but was just white men, uh, there wouldn't have been two parties if everyone or, uh, you know, had thought exactly the same. So, 
I don't think that anyone's um, sex or race is, is determinative um, in terms of their perspective or that any one perspective is any more valuable than another. It's just different. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing this perspective. Uh, I'm curious, how do your do you, you must interact a fair amount. You must have an editor that you interact with. And I'm curious how that process goes and, and what, how they respond to your writings and, or your readers for that matter. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I will say one last thing just to add to the previous, your previous comment, which is that I always feel insulted if someone brings up, for example, the fact that I'm a woman and that somehow coloring what my point of view is on something, because to me, it feels incredibly reductive. Um, an answer I, I give my opinion on a movie or on a political issue may have nothing to do with the fact that I'm a woman. It just has to do with the fact that I'm me um, and to reduce it to something about my um, quote unquote, you know, identity, at least in demographic terms rather than individualistic terms, um, always feels uh like a, a way of of dismissing or um, sort of marginalizing your your view. So um, there's also that you know people often talk about um, an identity as being informing of a view without understanding that an identity is also or emphasizing someone's identity and having a particular opinion or perspective can also be a way to dismiss or reduce or marginalize it. But to go back to your happier question about um, <laughs> editing, I have a great editor um, who is incredibly smart. Um, in the old days at the New York Times, it used to be that colonists um, did not have editors. Uh, in fact, not so old days. This this is only very recent that every colonist has an editor that they work with. Um, it used to be they would just have an assistant who would fact check and you would have the copy desk who would copy edit it. Um, but you didn't have an editor that you worked with. Um, on a one-on-one -on -one regular basis. And I really love having an editor. Um, I wanted to have an editor, having been an editor and having worked with editors. I know that editors, you know, really have the ability, a good editor to make your work better, smarter. Um, it's always good to have a reader of your work before something goes out there. They might notice something that you're missing. Um, in my case, my editor is one of the smartest people I know, um, and uh, his name is Jamie, and he uh, is incredibly um, well-read, both deep and wide. And, you know, just one example, I remember I was writing a column about um, about uh, guns, actually, and um, he said, you know, there's this article um, you might want to take a look at. And, you know, he sends me the link, and it's a 29-year-old article from The New Yorker. You know, that's how much information he retains and, and kind of has at ready access. Um, and it was really interesting to read that and helped um, deepen what it was I was trying to say. So um, I'm always, you know, waiting very eagerly to hear his response to a column after I filed it. Um, and I take his um, his feedback really seriously. I also have um, a great uh, editorial assistant who I work with. Um, and I always want to hear her point of view. Um, she, you know, she's much younger, obviously, than I am. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just great to have, again, different different feedback coming from different places. Um, so I welcome that. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a, you're one member of a team. And I mean, it feels like you have a team aspect. If you, 
I suppose if you had to write without the team, you probably could, but this sounds much better. You sound like you love your job. <laughs> I mean, you I said it. I do love yeah. my job. <laughs> I do. I do. I feel extremely lucky. Um, so I just, I, I, you know, I've only been doing this for a year um, and columnists typically do this job for, you know, 10 years, 20 years. So um, I, maybe I'm just still giddy with it, um, but it feels like I, you know, every week I get to write something and get to be paid for that and get to, um, you know, have something out there in the world and, and get feedback. And I, I, you know, and hopefully have some kind of impact. Um, you know, the, the world is the media obviously is incredibly big and fragmented and very unlike the media I grew up with. Uh, so it's not like every single New Yorker wakes up and reads the New York times, not that they ever did. Um, but our audience is just really different now than from what it has been. But I'm hope, you know, I hope that um, the work gets out there and gets read. And, and again, to your point earlier, hopefully saying some things that, you know, maybe haven't been said or thought of in the way that I'm writing about will get other people um, to feel more comfortable expressing themselves, whether it's in writing or otherwise. I wonder, before the column, with the book review, like I went on, on, there's a lot of videos of you. you. I feel like you were very supportive to authors. So as much as you like writing, I had the sense that you were very supportive of the writing community and getting authors' voices out there. Was that something you loved as well? I mean, I mean, I you know, it's funny. The word community, I always, I always sort of bristle at a little bit because there isn't really a writers' community. There's yeah. so many writers and there's so many like subgroups. I would you know think of it as a more of a uh, a field or an occupation or a population and it's, you know, really diverse, but I did love the fact, I did love the ability to, um, to talk to writers regularly, um, on my podcast, I would interview two authors a week, usually, um, sometimes three, uh, I just, it, it was just, it's always so interesting to talk to people about their, their work. And it was, hugely rewarding to be able to elevate what I thought was good, important writing, um, people that were doing things, uh, writing in interesting ways or writing about subjects that deserved to get out there. Um, and I also love, you know, a, a, the publishing industry. I just, it's, these are people who dedicate themselves to um to ideas and to good writing um obviously not everyone is is great at it um but there are so many smart interesting um idealistic hardworking people and i i want that you know industry to succeed and um sometimes i get a little worried about uh about books um uh, because i care about them a lot but um but yeah i i really it did feel like a mission to me at the book review, what I was doing in the same way that what I'm doing right now does. And, you know, I feel lucky like that. Lucky because I have been in jobs where it definitely didn't feel like, uh, you know, my mission was being fulfilled. <laughs> or I didn't believe in the mission. I can't help but follow up because you, you said about, you were talking about you love the industry, but you're worried about some things. And I mean, what brought me to you was you quoting John Sargent about, his support and um, I sort of picture someone facing into a headwind and, and still going through it. And so that headwind I feel is if I, if, if I read you right is what you're worried about. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, my friend Bob Gottlieb, who just died, you know, very suddenly and unexpectedly, um, his full name is Robert Gottlieb, and he was a longtime editor at Simon & Schuster and at Knopf. He was also briefly the editor of The New Yorker. And he, um, the thing that worried him the most was um, corporate, corporatization of book publishing. And um, and I was sometimes worried about other things, but I think that ultimately what we were both worried about was one and the same. They were tied. And that is that, you know, big corporations tend to be um, or can be very risk adverse. And the publishing industry really started as a risk taking industry. You know, anytime you're in the world of ideas, it should be about taking risks, um, whether it's, you know, technology, the same thing. You know, if you don't take risks, you don't, you, you, you stagnate. And um, because the publishing industry has been facing a lot of pressures financially, and because it has consolidated so much, and when I talk about financial pressures, that's everything from, you know, uh, print plants closing to um, the costs of paper rising and shipping costs. And, you know, there's all kinds of economic pressures on the, on the, on the field. Um, but when you have all of these pressures, um, the tendency can be to kind of hunker down and publish what is really safe and, um, and, and is going to work. And with some things, you know, it's, easy to know what's going to work. Like, you know, people know that certain authors are always going to sell like Stephen King and James Patterson. And you could just kind of lean into that thriller, certain kinds of um, formulas that have worked before. Um, but with some of the more interesting experimental kind of literature or book subjects, you don't necessarily know that it's going to work or a new author. You don't necessarily know that they're going to um, reach an audience. And sometimes you know, in the old world, it used to be that it would take an author, you know, maybe three, four or five books before they caught on. But when you're in an um, economy that's become risk adverse, you don't want to make that, uh, you don't make that investment over the long term. If something doesn't work, you sort of say, okay, no, let's try the next thing or let's, you know, retreat. Um, and so there's just less risks taken and rest less investment in things that um, might be a little bit different. Uh, so I think that, you know, publishing has become kind of conservative in some ways in terms of what it's willing to try. Are you talking only about traditional or is this also for hybrid or um, Substack? I'm talking about traditional publishing. So I'm talking about book publishing. So is do you think that hybrid is picking up where traditional left off or other modes like is the over if if that industry is retreating is the space empty or is it being filled like are they seeding ground are they just losing ground or are can the risks be still be taken just in, in other ways well i mean i think you know when you mentioned substacks i think that that really that that's talking about another field, which is journalism, right? And I think mm -hmm. journalism and publishing, book publishing, are both have those similar kind of pressures. And with journalism, it's certainly true that, you know, Substacks and podcasts have kind of filled in um, some of that more risk-taking mode. I think in publishing, there's self-publishing, but actually a lot of that doesn't tend to be 
riskier necessarily. Sometimes it's just, um, it's, it's actually not riskier. You know, it's a, a lot of genres is, is self-published and ultimately a lot of it becomes, you know, the, the more successful self-published authors often then get sort of absorbed into um, mainstream publishing, at least to some degree. And actually wrote a column about Colleen Hoover, who's a romance um, and sort of uh, commercial fiction writer who started off with self-publishing and then uh, she she still does a little bit, I think, but she has crossed over into mainstream publishing. Um, I think that the risk taking that happens online um, and in podcasts, or I guess what you're referring to as hybrid kind of uh, publishing is more apparent to me, at least in the world of journalism than it is in book publishing. Well, I was thinking of book publishing, hybrid book publishing. I mean, I've decided to go with a hybrid publisher as opposed to a dig- traditional publisher in part for the freedom and yeah, I'm really enjoying the, the, the inside view that I think maybe from your perspective, you're just talking about your life, but it's very interesting to me and, and I'm learning. I, I love that inside view in general. Also, especially when I'm writing my book of this particular industry. Well, I'm not entirely inside it now, but, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm constantly observing the publishing industry. You know, I, I I just realized I didn't look specifically in your columns to see if you've written about the environment and sustainability. I've read a bunch, but I don't remember if, if you wrote about this this topic. I have not really written about it. Um, not because it's not an area of interest to me, but um, we have some columnists who cover climate um, and sustainability really well. Um, but because I just haven't had anything in particular that I've felt it that I needed to say. Um, it's interesting. Technology is also an area of great interest to me, but I haven't written about it much either yet. So it's uh, it could easily be down the road, but I haven't I have not written about environment the environment directly. If you ever want to write about it or think about it, I'm happy to talk about it. All right. And then now I have to comment a bit. Uh, I was reading your article on um, or your piece on on uh, reading books that you hate, and like, I just read a couple of books that I was like, ah, I don't really want to read this, and I was like, oh, this is a really good book. But The Fountainhead, when I was like, I read it in high school because you were, it's for, for readers. I'll, I'll put a link to it, but um, you talked about reading it, and it was like you were going to see, or you were going to read every page, every word of it. And it reminded me when I was in high school, I read it, and I just, I just loved it. I thought it was such a great book. And then I went to college and I started reading more books on philosophy and thought, and I was like, it was a great book until I read anything else. <laughs> and then it faded away. Yeah. I um, I didn't know anything about Ayn Rand, about objectivism. When I read that book, I read it actually because it was assigned for a class I took in college. It was actually an extra reading assignment. You didn't have to read it, but it was for a class I really loved on 20th century architecture. And I just went into it thinking, oh, cool, this is a novel about an architect. And um, so it sort of snuck up on me um, that uh, for me, at least, uh, her philosophy is totally odious. And then also, I really hated the writing. Um, and I, I hated, um, you know, Dominique was always striding across a room in a dress, you know, shaped like a column. And I don't know, I, um, 
so I, I really hated it, but I know a lot of people love that book. Um, and I, you know, I am drawn to reading books that I don't necessarily like. I was often, you know, I often did that when I was at the book review. Again, sometimes just to broaden my horizons, other times just to try to understand, like, why is this book resonating? I mean, for the Colleen Hoover column, I read a bunch of her books. It's not what I would choose to read in my free time, but you have to read them in order to understand them and understand something. Uh, so I, and it's similar with journalism. I really do gravitate more toward reading um, things that I disagree with because I already know what I think. Uh, I already know what I agree with. I don't need to. I was never one for watching much cable news because especially, I mean, I, I was back in the day and I worked briefly for CNN, um, not in a news capacity, but um, when it was really just reporting from around the world, I'm not as interested in um, hearing an opinion that I 100% agree with sort of repeated at me. So I do like to try to read things that somehow push me in some way. Any specific examples of things that you read that just really opened your mind and thought, well, I never would have come up with that. And I'm really glad I read it, even though I expected to dislike it. Hmm. Um, I'd have to look, I keep a book of books where I write down what uh -huh. I've read. Um, well, I'll give one example. It's actually the last book that I finished um, for fun was the book Sapiens um, by Yuval Noah Harari. And I resisted reading that book for a really long time because it was so popular. And I often do this. If a book comes extremely popular, I, you know, I almost have this knee jerk reaction, which is really uh, a little obnoxious, I admit. But like, well, if everyone else loves this, like, then I'm not going to. I mean, I remember I was, I was, uh, turned on to David Sedaris's books very early on by one of my brothers uh, before he became popular. And then when he really hit it big time with me, Talk Pretty one day, um, I said, that's it, I'm done. And I refused to read that book for a long time because I thought, you know, if everyone else likes him, like I, it's not possible that mm -hmm. that I, I would still like him. And then at a certain point, I thought this is idiotic. I read that book. It was excellent as uh, yeah, it's really funny. I should have known. Yeah. And I've read everything he's written, everything that he's written since, um, sometimes multiple times. So with Sapiens, again, I resisted it because it was a huge bestseller. And I thought, well, you know, it, it, uh, therefore I won't like it. Um, but I did really enjoy it. I thought he did something very interesting in that book, which is, um, to try to really retell human history, looking at man as a biological, uh, you know, it, it, it is a, um, an animal and, um, to, talk about to look at history as the story of how did this one animal of all the other animals on the planet kind of come to dominate and what is it that made uh that made man as opposed to an homo sapiens as opposed to say homo erectus or as opposed to you know a giraffe um dominate over all other creatures on the planet and um and it was a it was really well done it was you know, sometimes it's what's commonly called a big think book, which mm -hmm. um, can be sort of hit or miss for me. But what a lot of those books try to do, ultimately, it boils down to taking a certain lens and applying it to 
to a subject and viewing it through that narrow lens. So it's taking a look at something very broad, but through one small perspective. And so, you know, by its very nature, it can be kind of provocative and, and eye-opening. Oh, thanks for sharing. It happens that I'm in the middle of Homo Deus myself, his, another book of his. And I was putting off it. I'm reading it because uh, I found it on the sidewalk. Oh, you know what? I got my book on the sidewalk too. I got my <laughs> book at a little library in San Francisco and I was passing by with my brother and, uh, and, and he was looking through for himself and he said, Oh, sapiens, I have this. And I was like, I really want to read that. And he's like, well, take it. I'm like, I can't take it. It's not my city. And he's like, no, 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 no. You take it. I'm going to drop off books later. So anyway, we both found them on sidewalks. Yeah. I guess people either want it to be read or. Uh, it falls out of their bags. Yeah. I also just finished Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake about um, oh the mushrooms fungi, which I also found. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have that. I haven't read it yet. Um, I have a, a few books about uh, about mushrooms. I'm completely fascinated with that whole idea of these underground networks and the communications between trees and mushrooms and. Um, I wonder if you've read Richard Powers' book, uh, The, the Overstory. Oh, I've, it's many times recommended to me, and just it's on the list, but I haven't gotten to it. I thought you were going to say The Secret Life of Trees, which is – I have this weird thing. There's something that I watched of you at an author event, and it's talking about Three Lives Bookstore, which is down the block from me. And I didn't read all of it, but I read a bunch of it there. And something – I don't know why Three Lives resonates with me and you. I think there's an author on it who had just had an event there or something like that. Hmm. But is have you read Overstory? I have read Overstory, yeah. And again, it gets at that idea of these, you know, kind of these, uh, the ways in which trees communicate with one another. And the author, um, the scientist whose work that book is based on also as a guest on my podcast back when I had it, uh, the book review podcast. And, um, and I spoke with her too. And I just, I find that whole, you know, area of inquiry really fascinating. Well, I hope to bring you a phenomenal book myself on sustainability and the environment, but I'm still working on it. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I took it in a much more selfish direction uh, than I meant to, but I really enjoyed, not just, I mean, enjoyed, yes, but also uh, benefited from some of the views you had, um, a bigger view than I was thinking. Uh, anything I didn't think to ask before wrapping up or any, any interest of any questions about the environment or sustainability? Um, not to, not to put you on no, the spot. No, because <laughs> I'll just, I'll feel guilty about what I'm, what I am, what I'm not doing. Um, but I will say, um, since you wanted that answer, uh, to one of your very first questions, um, I will give you that answer, which is to just go and do and write your book, um, and forget about all of those voices that say, oh, you know, why you, why now, and get your ideas out there. And if you don't mind, I'll add, enjoy the process and just have a bit of that. This is the best thing I could be doing. Yeah. And hopefully you'll get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pamela Paul, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. 
How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.